Arthur Bennett once wrote in the periodical Bits and Pieces. It's one of these um, kind of inspirational quarterlies, kind of like a Reader's Digest, if you remember that magazine. Uh, Arthur Bennett wrote on the subject of time, and it's very interesting. Let me read it to you. This is an excellent writer. He writes, time is the inexplicable raw material of everything. With it, all is possible. Without it, nothing. The supply of time is truly a daily miracle, an affair genuinely astonishing when one examines it. You wake up in the morning and lo, your purse is magically filled with 24 hours of the unmanufactured tissue of the universe of your life. Do you love that? The unmanufactured tissue of the universe of your life. It is yours. It is the most precious of possessions. No one can take it from you. It is not something that can be stolen, and no one receives either more or less than you receive. Moreover, you cannot draw on its future. Impossible to get into debt. You can only waste the passing moment. You cannot waste tomorrow. It is kept for you. You cannot waste the next hour. It is kept for you. You have to live on this 24 hours of daily time. Out of it, you have to spin health, pleasure, money, content, respect, and the evolution of your immortal soul. Its right use, its most effective use, is a matter of the highest urgency and of the most thrilling actuality. All depends on that, your happiness. The elusive prize that you are all clutching for, my friends, depends on that. Wow. It's no wonder people are so guarded with their time, isn't it? You combine that with the cherished American values of freedom and privacy and autonomy and consumerism and anything that makes a demand on your time better be something really special. It's no wonder of all the commandments, the fourth commandment is one we'd, we'd rather kind of ignore or, or rationalize away. Of all the commandments, I think the fourth commandment is the one commandment that even Christians, if we're being honest, wish were not in the list, right? I mean, who's going to argue against the sixth commandment, that thou shalt not murder? Nobody, Christian or not, is going to argue against commandments seven and eight about adultery or theft, and no Christian in their right mind is going to push back against commandments one through three, the priority of God, his name, and his image. But number four... How I use my time, how I use my Sunday, no less. Whoa, you getting a little bit personal on this one, Lord. As a matter of fact, some people discount the whole notion of God whole cloth just because of this issue. In Time Magazine, when they interviewed Bill Gates, the founder and then CEO of Microsoft, he said this. When they asked him, why don't you believe in God? He said, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a whole lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. <laughs> well, maybe even you can relate. I mean, after all, we do live in a busy world where time is money, right? we got to get the competitive edge out there. We are missing opportunities, and there's only so many of them to go around. So you need to grab them when they come by. It doesn't matter what day, even if it's on the Lord's Day. We've got to maximize our potential. 
Now, maybe for you, that wasn't the case. Maybe you came from a family that observed the fourth commandment militantly. And so the only thing your parents let you do was walk to church on a Sunday morning, sing hymns when you came home, and maybe eat gruel, right? And if you did anything else that day, it couldn't make you happy and it shouldn't make you smile because holy people don't do those things, right? I mean, either way you look at it, I mean, there's just a lot to talk about when it comes to the fourth commandment, right? There's just way more to talk about on a Sunday morning sermon. Um, I told my wife, I wish this was the kind of sermon that I could extend for a couple of weeks because there's so much to talk about that we just simply can't. So I'm going to try and talk about at least three things. Number one, the command to rest because we are dealing the Ten Commandments. So we got to look at the command to rest, the confusion about rest, which is very prevalent in our society, and then finally, Jesus Christ, our final rest. So that's what we're going to look at, the command to rest, the confusion surrounding rest, and Jesus as our final rest. The first thing we need to note as we look at Exodus chapter 20 and look at the fourth commandment is this. It is pretty cool that God commands rest. I mean, we just got to get that on the table. That God is not simply concerned that his people rest, but he actually commands it is pretty revealing about the kind of God he actually is. And we just have to recognize how wonderful that this is, something that God commands of his people that you rest As a matter of fact, so important is this command, the Sabbath, that God says in Exodus 31 that this is a sign of the covenant. Now, that just seems bizarre and disproportionate to the weight of the command itself. Because if you and I were to pick something that was a sign of the covenant, it wouldn't have been observing Sabbath or church on Sunday, would it? I mean, do not murder. That seems pretty weighty compared to showing up to church. Why not make that the sign of the covenant? Um, do not commit adultery. Marital fidelity seems pretty important, has a lot more gospel implications than show up to church. Of course, you know the Sabbath is more than showing up to church, but I'm trying to illustrate the fact that of all the commandments God gave, even having no other gods beside him, you'd think he'd make one of those the sign of the covenant, but why the commandment? And now here, I I feel like departing from my notes because I have all my, my... other notes in my head I want to talk about. But let me just say that of all the commandments, notice the fourth commandment is the hinge. There's a reason it's the sign of the covenant covenant, because it, it tends to link humanity with heaven because commandments one, two, and three had exclusively this vertical dimension dealing with our relationship with God and commandments five and rest deal with our relationship with one another. Another commandment four seems to be this amazing hinge where heaven and earth meet. And actually, that's exactly what's going on. And so he says, this is a sign of my covenant to you, to rest. But don't be confused in thinking that God's commandment to his people means that we're all a bunch of divine or, you know, holy couch potatoes. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you notice in Exodus 20, uh, the, the often overlooked command or statement in that commandment that God says that six days you will labor and do your work. A lot of times people miss that, that that's part of the fourth commandment. Six days you are to labor and do your work, but on the seventh day, seventh day you rest, not just you, but everyone, man, woman, child, your servant, even your animals, take a breather. If you know about Sabbath in the Old Testament, even the land would take a breather. Everyone gets a break. 
And God has ordained that. In other words, friends, the God of the Bible is a working and resting God. The God of the Bible is a working and resting God. The biblical worldview, Christianity, knows nothing of laziness on one hand or workaholism on the other. God has so intricately woven into the fabric of the lives of his people a regular routine, of ri a rhythm of work and rest that is sacred and necessary for our well-being. And notice in verse 11 of chapter 20, he grounds this command, this Sabbath, into the rest he himself enjoyed, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He rested from his work, not necessarily because he was exhausted, but to revel in the goodness of what he had made and commands his people to do the same. But it's interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the Ten Commandments are repeated, God does not ground it in creation. What God then does is ground it in his redemption of the people of Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 15 he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore... The Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So by looking at these two verses where we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and then the Ten Commandments reiterated again in Deuteronomy 5, and there's a subtle change in the grounding of the Sabbath, we actually learn a lot. We understand the significance of the Sabbath by comparing and contrasting those two verses. And these are the three reasons that we see Sabbath was so important. Now, as I said, there's so much more to talk about that uh, Sabbath, that Sunday is the new Sabbath. Now, for some of you, you might think, well, wait a minute, no, Sunday is Sunday and Sabbath is Sabbath. Sabbath was for the Jews and Sunday's for the Christian. So you're conflating the terms. The reality is Sunday has eclipsed Sabbath in God's economy. Now, most of you will just take my word for it because that would take another 20 minutes to explain. For those of you who really have to find out, come see me after the fact, okay? But just I want you to know I'm not unaware that the Jews celebrate the Sabbath and Christians celebrate Sunday, but from a biblical theological perspective, Sunday is the Sabbath because they point to the same thing. And you'll see that as we talk about what was the point of the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is the same thing that we have Sunday. And we see this by comparing and contrasting these two verses, Exodus 20, 11 and Deuteronomy 5, 15. Here they are. The first one was physical refreshment, rest. Can you imagine if you were a Hebrew hearing, you were the original audience hearing this command Imagine what it was to be a member of a slave nation that you worked 24-7, 365 for four centuries. There was no two-week vacation, folks. You were a slave. You were a slave nation. You were born, you lived, you died as a slave being worked into the ground. And all of a sudden, there is this hope that this God says, that is not the way it's going to be. Every seventh day, it will be a day of complete rest and refreshment. Friends, we don't have time to get in now, but the concept of rest and refreshment, friends, that's a gospel motif all through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The concept of rest is a gospel motif in a world that's weary and tired, that is burdened 
The gospel is a message of rest. The problem is most of us don't know what our burdens are. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But rest is one of the most appealing aspects of the gospel message. But that's not the only reason we have the Sabbath. That's not the only reason we have Sunday. It's not just for physical refreshment, but also fellowship with God. You see, this wasn't a a, a self-focused rest. It was a rest with a purpose. Notice the often overlooked prepositional phrase in the Bible. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. Friends, we need to realize that not all of our rest is refreshing, isn't it? How many times have you been on a vacation and you came back and you needed like a vacation from the vacation you just took? Not all of our rest is refreshing because we're not aware oftentimes of what our real burdens are. So when we pursue our idea of rest, we come back even more tired because that's not the burden you're trying to get a vacation from. Okay, I said I'm going to talk about it later, so I'm going to push that off later. The point is, Sabbath was a rejoicing in fellowship with God, reveling in the fact of what he has done, which leads us to our third point of the Sabbath. It was a celebration, a commemoration of God as creator from Exodus 20 and redeemer from Deuteronomy 5. And so to make it easy to remember what Sunday is about, I've made it in a little alliteration, three R's. It's about rest, it's about rejoicing, and it's about remembering. It is resting from our labor and toil. It is rejoicing, and by the way, we rest by rejoicing in the character of God, and we remember what he has done as creator of all reality and the redeemer of humanity. That is what Sabbath, that's what Sunday's about. That's what the Sabbath was about. It was to be about resting, rejoicing, and remembering. Well, sign me up, right? That sounds, sounds like a great plan. I'd like to get in on that. And you can imagine the Jews, the slave nation going, yeah, I'm into that. So here's the question then. Why is there so much confusion about the Sabbath in our lives today? And that's going to be our second point. I think we have confusion about the Sabbath today because of the fundamental abuses, abuses of the Sabbath, not just in the Bible or history, but today. And so let's look at them one at a time, the, all these abuses. So we have abuses of the Sabbath in the Bible. And the first ones we start with is the nation of Israel itself. And, and, and you can imagine originally to a, a nation of slaves, the sound of, of a day of rest was just like water to a parched soul. But on the other hand, you can imagine this slave nation was not always going to be a slave nation. They ended up developing an economy, trade, commerce, agriculture. Now, what sounded like a great day off sounds a little like we're going to lose market share. Someone else is going to get the competitive edge. We're going to miss the opportunity. We need to maximize the potential we have. We can't take this time off. We need to get busy here. We need to provide. We need to get, get, get going or the Amalekites are going to get the market share here, right? Kind of forgetting that, wait a minute, who gives us everything we need? Doesn't it come from the hand of God? And so you can see how what started off as a good idea has become something that may be more of a burden. And so the Jews, the Israelites, began to ignore the Sabbath. Now, what I need to do is compress Uh, probably about 1,400 years of what's going on into four minutes. So let me do that for you. God gives the command of the Sabbath to observe it and and to do no work and to rest on that day. 
And Israel decides that they have to do this, but then they drift away from that commandment. They do so badly, so, they've drifted away so far from the commandment that God had judged Israel. Well, God brought Israel back into the land because of his mercy, and we have the book of Nehemiah. It's, it's actually, chronologically, the last book in the chronological events of the Bible, even though it's not the last book in canonical. Does that make sense? So what happens is, Nehemiah is praying out to God. The Jews have come back to their homeland, but the walls of Jerusalem are just destroyed, and he feels like God's going to be the guy to help him revive it and lead a revival, and that's, in fact, what happens. The people of God recognize that God judged them justly and that God's given them another chance, and they're rejoicing, and they're making, again, the promises not to violate the commands, and that's where we pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 31. So we, hear, we see this as the, uh, the nation of Israel is repenting. And if these peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And so they're recognizing, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. So if, if merchants are coming over, the Hittites and the Malachites and the Canaanites, and they want to sell their goods, we're going to close the gates and say, no bueno, it's a Sabbath day, so that's not going to happen. And so Nehemiah says, this is great. They've learned their lesson. Now, if you know the story of Nehemiah, he left his day job to come back to Israel to help Jerusalem. Everything is set up now. Everything is going great. So Nehemiah leaves for three years. But three years later, he comes back. And look at what he sees in Nehemiah chapter 13. The exact opposite. In those days, Nehemiah writes, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warmed them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Now, obviously, I'm emphasizing certain things, but did you hear? On the Sabbath. You're doing this on the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath, and it's happening in the capital of the nation of people, God's people. Oh, what was Nehemiah's going out of his mind? You can hear it there. What were you people thinking? You can hear Nehemiah. Well, we know what they were thinking. We know what they were doing. They were doing what all people tend to do. We just ignore God's word because we'd rather do something differently. Even though one of the main reasons they were thrown into captivity, lost their political autonomy, lost their national identity, because they violated the Sabbath, they did it anyway, and they're doing it again. It was a short-term gain for a long-term loss. Let me read to you while they were in exile, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 23, this is what the Lord says. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness back in the Exodus 20 days, that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. And their eyes were set on their father's idols. So we need to be clear, the Jews had done other things other than profane the Sabbath. They had become an idolatrous people. They disobeyed many of the commands. But violating the Sabbath was one of the reasons God said, we're done. I'm moving you out. This is what Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 17, 27. But if you do not listen to me, the Lord says, to keep the Sabbath day holy, 
and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So Israel ignored the Sabbath. They forgot that the Sabbath wasn't about just them having a day off. It was much more than that. It was to rejoice in God, in the community of what the people of God. It was to remember God as their creator and redeemer. And they treated Sabbath day like it was just another day off for them to do with as they pleased. Friends, are you in danger of doing this? Are you in danger of treating the Lord's day as if it was just another day off and it was for you to do as you please? Have you forgotten? Have, you, have we as a church drunk in the cultural Kool-Aid and believe that our time is our own? Friends, as a Christian, do you believe your time is your own to do with as you please? That's something we need to think about. Don't, don't, don't let the cultivated Christian civility kick in here. Don't check out on me. If you are a Christian, do you think your time is your own? Because the Bible says it's not, just to be really clear. The Bible couldn't be clear on this issue that your time is not your own. Do you remember when we studied the book of James? James chapter 4, verse 13 and following. James actually said, look, if you're making plans with your life and you're not considering the things of God, you're a fool. You are arrogant, James says, that you actually think you can plan your life out as if God has nothing to say about that. You're arrogant, James chapter 4, verse 13 and following. Remember when we studied the book of Galatians? And Paul said very clearly, if you are a Christian, guess what? Your life that you live now, you don't live by your own principles. You live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Your life's not your own. Romans chapter 14, he says, whether you live, whether you die, you live and die unto the Lord. Your life's not your own. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he died so that we might live not to ourselves, but for him. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By the way, if you're in a community group, all these verses are going to be in your community group questions. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He just comes out and says it. You were bought and paid for at a price. You don't own yourself. He's using slave market mentality and vocabulary. You were bought. When you were on the slave block, you were bought. You're not your own. You went from being a slave in Egypt, and you are now a slave of righteousness. Do you think your time is yours to fill up as you decide? If you're a Christian, my brothers, as one who stands under the word of God with you, our time is not our own. Our time is not our own. And the Jews treated that way. The Israelites treated it that way, and God reminded them in no uncertain terms, that's not how this goes. And he sent them into exile. But yet in his grace... He brings them back into the land. And so what the Jews do, they realize they're back in the land and we were exiled because we ignored the Sabbath. We'll never do that again. So they made an equally bad mistake and idolized the Sabbath. And that is primarily the tensions we see in the New Testament between Jesus and the Pharisees. So in the Old Testament, the abuse of the Sabbath was they just ignored it. And in the New Testament, the abuse of the Sabbath was they idolized it. And so all throughout the Gospels, you'll see that the tension that the Pharisees had against Jesus had to do with him violating the Sabbath. So much so, we see in John chapter 5, verse 16, 
This is what it says. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So if you read all the gospel accounts, I'll have them on the screen, you're going to see chapter by chapter by chapter all these incidences where Jesus and the Pharisees mixed it up because Jesus was working on the Sabbath. But they completely misunderstood the point of the Sabbath. They had ignored it, and now they idolized it. You say, well, how do you idolize something that God said we should do? I mean, aren't we supposed to do what God says to do? Yeah, but not make an idol of God's commands. You see, we make an idol of God's commands, no matter how good they are, whenever we take God's command and Scripture and we disassociate them from the character of God and seek to apply them that way. When you do that with God's Word, you will always misapply God's Word. When you take His Word and you disassociate it from His character and you try to apply it the way you see fit, you're always going to misapply it. And so they idolize the Sabbath. And they missed the whole point of why God gave us the Sabbath. And so they say, well, we were judged for ignoring it. We're not going to do that anymore. So we're going to come up with rules about what's work and what's rest and what can be counted with this, what you can do on the Sabbath, what you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. We're never going to make that mistake again. And they forgot the whole point of the Sabbath. Now, in the Gospels, there's tons of examples of that. And throughout history, there are. But I just want to share two that, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And since I'm related to it, I can share it with you. I was in Israel about 20 years ago, and I was there with a, prof- a professor of mine and wandering around, and I remember seeing a toothbrush that was tied to a tree, right? So I'm like, okay, that's weird, but hey, that's what they do in Israel, who knows? And then I saw a, 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 like a mirror, you know, one of these hand mirrors tied to a bench. That was odd, but I said, I can leave, go with that. And then I saw a comb tied to a stop sign, and I kept seeing this over and over, all these like household items tied, taped to things. And I thought, okay, either there's an amazing scavenger hunt taking place in Jerusalem or I'm totally missing something. So I said, Todd, I talked to my professor, I'm like, what's the, what's the deal with all the household items? I mean, it was pretty obvious. He said, oh, it's Sabbath walking rules. I said, what are you talking We were in a conservative part of Jerusalem. I said, Sabbath walking rules? He says, yeah, the Mishnah tells us that on Sabbath day, you can only walk a certain distance before it becomes work. And so you can only walk a certain distance from your home. So to, get, to extend the walking range, they attach items from their home, and that becomes their home, satellite home, and then they can extend their walking range. It's the real deal, folks. Can't make this stuff up. So another friend of mine, I'm talking to him about this, and he's visiting a synagogue, and they're having a discussion about what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath. And apparently we learned that I, if we were Jewish, I could load the dishwasher in our household, but my wife Lori could not load the dishwasher on the Sabbath. Because if you load the dishwasher and you just throw stuff in pell-mell and then get it going, that's not work. But if you systematically order all the dishes, that's work. Now, this is crazy, but, but the Jews had done this. So if you're familiar with the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the Jews that came from their Babylonian captivity when they got kicked to exile, they came up with 40 laws of forbidden work, 40 categories of forbidden work. Seeds you could plant, seeds you couldn't. Stitches you could weave, stitches you couldn't. Kinds of alphabet from their language you could use and the kind of alphabet that you couldn't. And this was work and this wasn't work. I mean, it's just work figuring this stuff out. But they have it. Because they're applying a command of God completely stripped from the character of God. And it's always going to be misapplied. And, you know, we can laugh at that because it's crazy. But we do the same kind of thing as Protestants, haven't we? 
And so those were the abuses of the Sabbath in the Old Testament or in the Bible, but we have abuses of the Sabbath in our own histories as well. And for some, you, some maybe in this room, uh, you might have grown up in a tradition where Christian Sunday was not much different than the Jewish Sabbath. That it was all about remembrance and reverence and awe and worship, but it was completely stripped of the rejoicing and the rest. And whenever you have that, just an element of awe and remembrance, but you don't understand the rejoicing and the rest that came with it, Sabbath or Sunday becomes just a religious obligation. And so, yeah, you could be here every Sunday, but if there's not a resting in the work of Christ and a rejoicing over what he's done and a remembering him as your creator and redeemer, you're still violating the fourth commandment, right? Because there's, there's no heart in it, and that's what it was about constantly, so that abuse in our recent Protestant history, which even some of my own family, my in-laws, they grew up in those kinds of homes. You know, the eat and gruel thing wasn't a made-up illustration. That was the real deal here. But I think that's led to another abuse that maybe in our contemporary culture we're more prone to, and that is as evangelicals, we ignore the Sabbath. So it's kind of come full circle back to the way the Israelites did in the Old Testament, where today most Christians just view Sunday as another day off. It's just another day off. I happen to go to church in the morning, but it's pretty much my day. They hear Sabbath, they hear rest, but they don't hear the equally important phrase tied right to that is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Barner Research Group, some of you are familiar with them, based upon current trends, has defined regular church attendance as two out of every five Sundays. That's not regular anything, right? I mean, what parent in this room would let their kids say, out of five opportunities, I brush my teeth twice. That's pretty regular, right? Would you continue to date a young man or young woman who regularly brushed their teeth by that metric? But yet we settle for that when it comes to obeying the word of God. Talking to our own denominational leaders from our movement, every Sunday between 25% and 33% of our people do not attend church. And it's not because of sickness, right? It's not because they legitimately had a fever or something like that. And it's not because of recognized, what the history has always recognized, acts of necessity, mercy, or charity, which are, by the way, great reasons to miss corporate worship, right? I mean, acts of necessity, I would hate to have my house burning down while I'm worshiping and a firefighter go, "Ah, I would put it out, but it is Sunday, so, you know, I'm just going to worship the Lord and we'll take care of your house later. I'd hate to be at the hospital and the doctor says, well, it is Sunday, so you're just going to have to hemorrhage. You'll probably make it to tomorrow, so you're okay. So there's works of necessity that is recognized as reasons not to be in the corporate gathering. There's works of mercy and charity, which, by the way, the Pharisees always got after Jesus for doing on the Sabbath because they missed the whole point of the Sabbath. To them, it was all about the forms, but they lost the function of the Sabbath. And Jesus was always getting to the function. It was to rest in what God, our Creator, had done in creating us and redeeming us. It was to rejoice in His character and remember that's who He is. As a matter of fact, you could say we rest by rejoicing as we remember who he is. But the majority of the people that I was talking about from the EFCA and Barna's research, they're not missing because of sickness or acts of necessity, mercy, and charity. 
You know why they miss. You, they miss for the same reasons we'll miss. I got my kids' sports game or my kids' other extracurricular activities because somehow that's more important than them understanding to worship the Lord their God. Or I woke up late or I didn't feel like it. Or I had something better to do or the general category of other. Can I just be honest? As a former youth worker and as someone who still talks to our youth workers, they won't tell you this because they love you too much, but if you're a parent here, you need to hear this. They are grieved at the idolatry that you are putting into your child's hearts because you put sports over their discipleship in Christ. They won't tell you that, but I will. When, when they're kids that they're pouring into, when they will free up their Sunday or their Wednesday or whatever time, they'll be here, but the kids won't be. Why? Because they've got so many AP classes, they are buried under work because achievement is the God that they bow to. They would never say that, but the way they live, that's what's going on. We are shackling our children with the idolatries that the gospel is seeking to free us from, and it's happening in our churches. If you are a young parent, avoid the idolatry of sports and achievement and social, social mobility and all these foolish things as if those are the things that bring you deliverance and life and freedom. Yeah, so my kids will never be Disney stars like we had that opportunity because the classes, the acting productions were on Sunday. That's okay. If God sovereignly wants my son or daughter to be a Disney weekend star, it's going to happen. If not, we just dodged a big bullet. God's sovereignty. Don't worry about what happens on Sunday. Honor him. This is why we have so much confusion about the Sabbath, because there's been so much abuse about it. So how do we not make the mistake of ignoring it or idolizing it? How do we navigate not being a slave to forms, but also not being a rebel against it? Well, that's where we land with Jesus, as we always do. Jesus is our final rest, and time prohibits us from unpacking it fully, but let me just read three passages of Scripture. Um, uh, go to Matthew chapter 11, if you have a Bible. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to take it, verse 28. And it's interesting, we won't unpack it entirely, but this passage that many of you know very well about rest in Christ is linked exactly to Sabbath practices in chapter 12. But this is what he says. Jesus says this in Matthew 28. It's page 816 in our pew Bibles. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you notice Jesus is saying the same kind of thing that Moses and God said in the Old Testament? There is a rhythm and routine of work and rest right there. He talks about rest and coming to him with their weary burdens, but there's a yoke he's going to put upon them. There's a burden he's going to put upon them, but the burden is the right burden. Friends, and I spoke of it earlier, we often don't know what the right burden is. If the burden of life to you merely is congested traffic, a demanding boss, hectic schedule, or lack of me time, then Jesus will never be your rest. Jesus will never be your rest because that's not the burden that's really at hand. 
But if you understand the burden as Jesus is talking about, as the sin that destroys humanity, that separates you from a holy, loving, compassionate, gracious, generous God, and the sin that is destroying the relationships in your life, and the sin that is corroding your soul, you will see Jesus as your rest desperately so. And regardless of whether the traffic's congested or your boss is a jerk or you don't have me time, you will find that he gives you the strength to, to, to sustain yourself, the peace to get through it, and the hope to overcome. But if the burden in your life is all temporal, you will never find rest in God. And you'll never find rest at all. Friends, trying to find rest apart from God, is like trying to quench your thirst by drinking seawater. Yeah, it might momentarily feel somewhat good, and you have no idea that you're just killing yourself. Our rest is in Christ because he deals with the burden that matters. It is not your hectic schedule. It's not all these things. Christ will, engage, he will empower you. He will enable you, enable you for those things. But you've got to understand the burden or you'll never understand the rest. Jesus is saying here, true rest is found in him. True rest is in companionship with him and cooperation with him because he has work for us to do. Now, someone might say, wait a minute. I read Mark chapter 2, and in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, on this same passage, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So doesn't that mean all this fourth commandment stuff doesn't apply anymore? Not at all. Remember, Jesus is dealing in a context where they idolized the Sabbath and came up with these crazy rules. So let me read to you from the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary because they say it so beautifully and I didn't want to mess it up. So this is what they say on this passage or about Jesus' statement about man for the Sabbath and not Sabbath for the man. Man for the Sabbath? Wait. Sabbath for the man. Not, yeah, you guys know it. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way. This writes this. Jesus does not want to set up more rules to decide what can or cannot be done on the Sabbath, but wants to penetrate through the rules to unfold God's will for the Sabbath. God did not create the Sabbath for humans to obey, but for human well-being. One can never interpret the law correctly unless one refers back to God's intention behind the law. God intended the Sabbath as a gracious gift to release human beings from the necessity of endless toil. Man, that's so true. So in Exodus, he gave the Sabbath to release his people from the endless toil of physical domination and slavery. But he also gave us the Sabbath to release us from the endless toil of slavery to self and the pressures of a lifestyle without God. Yeah, that's true. Friends, we, we are so desperate for rest, but we're not sure what the real burden is and we'll never find true rest. The Sabbath was given so that you could be freed from the endless toil of trying to please yourself, to free you from yourself so that you recognize that God is your creator and provider and redeemer. He will supply all that you sacrifice. I'm going to put that in air quotes because it's not a sacrifice at the end of the day. He will give to you what you think you're giving up for him. Not so that we can fill attendance roles, but because it is a day to rest in Him by rejoicing in Him, by remembering Him as Creator and Redeemer. And the best way that happens, just prudentially, is when most Christians are gathered. For some, it may not be Sunday. 
right? For some, it might be some other day, but the, the, the logical conclusion. So again, this is not about forms. This is the function. It is the function. I don't want you to feel like I'm a not attendance Nazi here, right? That, that, that we're going to have like facial recognition software calculating when everyone's here or not. Got better things to do. Because if you have the function of the Sabbath, then all the questions of form and what you can and can't do on a Sunday seem to entirely miss the point, don't they? Because if you understand the function, you will do everything you can to live in the Sabbath. And you'll realize, oh, it's not just that one day. It's actually every day. But we corporately share it on that one day. Let me end with this kind of statement that I think is really important. We'll leave it on the screen for a while because I think it's every phrase of it is important. Because I recognize, even though I'm trying to balance this, we can still get ideas of ignoring it or idolizing it. So this, this is a very packed statement. The day, Sunday, because Sunday is our Sabbath, because we do the same things that the Sabbath was intended to do, that day is given to you. It's a gift from God's merciful hand to you by the Lord for your benefit, but don't miss this important conjunction, and God's great glory, which is your highest good. Every phrase of that is so important. It is a day given to you by the Lord for your benefit and his amazing imperial glory. Which is your highest good? If you get that, don't sweat the details. Uh, I need to conclude. So I'm going to conclude with a Scottish proverb and a Hebrew prophet. Here's the Scottish proverb. A Sunday well spent brings a week of content and strength for the toils of tomorrow. But a Sunday profaned, whatever is gained, is a certain forerunner for sorrow. Now the Hebrew prophet, Isaiah 58, the Lord says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. Notice, folks, the, the, the juxtaposition and the dichotomy. We, we, when we hear our own pleasures, we say, how can we have delight in this? But God is getting to something in verse 14. Oh, it's up there. Okay. Um, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath. Notice there's, there's actions and attitudes all in this. Honor the Sabbath and everything you do on that day. And don't follow your own desires or talk idly. And notice it's like a promise in verse 14. If you do all that is said in verse 13, then the Lord will be your delight. You will love it. You will think, what was I thinking to make Sunday a negotiable? What in the world? When I'm in the world and people don't believe in the gospel and they hate my Lord and Savior, why would I ever not want to be with a bunch of people who love him? You, you find, you start delighting. And God says, and I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, that give us the function of what Sabbath is about. Lord, help us, forgive us for not resting in Christ, for seeking our rest in temporal selfish satisfaction and not being resting in Christ's final work for us and all that he has done. Help us to rejoice, 
to rejoice that we have been redeemed, that our sins are forgiven, that we have an eternal salvation with you, to remember that you are the creator of all and the redeemer of humanity. Father, that function be in our heart and let it play out in the forms of our life that in some ways will be very similar to most of us, in some ways unique. Father, help us to live and love the law of God as expressed in the life of Christ. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.